Second Peter chapter two, uh, let's look at the first verse and I'll sort of set the context. We read, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, at the end of 2 Peter chapter one, Peter spoke to us about holy men of God who were prophets and who, were sp- and who spoke as the Holy Spirit moved them. Now Peter's bringing in the alternative thought Not only were there holy men of God who were moved with the gift of prophecy, there were also false prophets that needed to be understood and dealt with. So he says right there in verse one, notice it again, but there were also false prophets, and then he also mentions false teachers. Now this was true both in Peter's day and our own. By the way, when you see false prophets and false teachers in the church today, it should be at least a small comfort for you that they were in the very first church as well. I mean, this goes all the way back to apostolic times. If we, sometime, if we somehow imagine a time when the church was so pure that there were never false prophets or false teachers in its midst, you're never gonna have such a time. All the way back from the time of the apostles itself. But notice this phrase in verse one, it's absolutely critical, it says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I want you to notice, it's a very basic point, but it bears our attention. False teachers work secretly. It isn't that their teaching is so secret. They want their teaching to be as public and as popular as possible. They want to get as many people to listen to their teaching. No, it's not their teaching itself that's secret, but it's the false nature, the deceptive nature of their teaching is hidden. Can I just give you a principle here? No false teacher ever announces themselves as a false teacher. They're they're not making t-shirts that say, I'm a false teacher. Every false teacher usually thinks of themselves as being sincere and being right and being perfectly on point. But no, they are, notice, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They destroy by telling lies about Jesus Christ and his work for us and in us. Now when I say lies, that might sound like a strong term because this is what I want you to understand. In the mind and maybe even in the voice of the false teacher, it doesn't seem like a lie. It's an error. But an error that is harmful enough can be considered a lie. And by these heresies, people are hurt and destroyed. Notice the phrase he uses, destructive heresies. Here's another little tagline for you. The first one is, no false teacher announces himself as a false teacher. The second tagline for you is this, is that heresy isn't harmless. Now, in the thinking of our modern age, heresy is absolutely harmless. You, you think God is the God of the Bible, and you over here, you think God is a you know, great big pizza or something like that. The, the way most people think, who cares? Who cares about what your ideas about God and eternity and spiritual things and eternal truth are all about? That's the thinking of our modern age. But ladies and gentlemen, if there really is a God, and I'm not saying that to call that into question, but but I'm just establishing that proposition. If there truly is a God, then how we regard that God is absolutely important. 
Because we want to worship, we want to relate, we want to connect to the God who is really there, the true God. And for us, of course, we understand this to be the God revealed by the Bible. I want you to notice something. False prophets secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice the phrase here in verse one, even denying the Lord who bought them. False teachers deny the Lord who bought them. In this, Peter says that at the very least, these people appear to be saved. Now, it's kind of interesting, both in the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 2 and at the end of 2 Peter chapter 2, we have passages or lines or verses that seem to deal with this issue of can a person lose their salvation? And it is not my intention to go into an in-depth discussion of that debate this evening. But I do just want to point something out here. When Peter says, even denying, who's denying? The false teachers are denying. The false teachers are denying the Lord who bought them. There is some sense in which these are bought people by Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Peter would never say that the Lord bought them. But at the same time, they are false, destructive teachers. Now look, here's the takeaway. Just, just get out of your mind for a moment the debate whether or not a person can lose their salvation. Just get that out of your mind for a moment. Take what you positively can say from this. You can say this, that even a person who appears to have a godly walk and relationship with Jesus Christ, they can still bring in destructive heresies. You, you could look at a brother or a sister. The Lord bought them, you'd say. Man, the Lord bought them. They belong to the Lord. That person still has the capability to bring in destructive heresies, false teachings. So you don't judge the teaching primarily by the character of the person involved in it. I'm not saying the character makes no difference and Peter's gonna speak to the character later on. But someone who appears to have a blood-bought life can still bring in destructive heresies. Matter of fact, let me say this. Oftentimes, good men who teach lies do the worst damage because their lies are believed because of the goodness of their life. But what do these people do? Notice at the end of verse one, they bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter's gonna speak more about that in a moment, so I'll just let that, but they bring on themselves. That's what these false prophets, false teachers do. They bring on themselves swift destruction. Now verse two, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Let that phrase get impressed upon your mind. Right there in verse two. Many will follow their destructive ways. Who's gonna follow? Many. Not, not just a few, many. Now, it's very easy for us in the Christian world to get very worked up over the number of people who follow false teachings. Sometimes they are false teachings that are easily understood to be false, uh, groups with completely wrong ideas about who Jesus is, such as uh, the Mormons or Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and I'm sorry if that's kind of like a bombshell before you. you. You may have had no knowledge of it, but I'm just telling you, the Jesus that is preached by the Mormons or Latter-day Saints and the Jesus that is preached by Jehovah's Witnesses, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
It's a distorted Jesus and so seriously distorted that we would regard it as a false teaching. Um, so some of those are easy to understand. There's other things that are just very significant twistings of doctrine and practice. Something like the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel that's sometimes said is that God's whole point of work in your life is to make you rich and perfectly healthy. And if you're not rich and if you're not perfectly healthy, you are out of God's will. So just get into faith, brother or sister. Okay, we, we understand those things. Now, we may get frustrated that those or perhaps other strange teachings get a big, large following. I want you to, this is exactly what Peter said would happen. Should we read it again? Look at verse two. Many will follow their destructive ways. And I have to say, to me, this is a marvel. It's not strange that there are false teachers. There's always weirdos out there trying to get a following. What is strange is how often false teachers are accepted and embraced by the Christian community. It shows that there is an alarming ignorance of God's word and people who are persuasive and and people who are sincere can convince people of things that aren't biblically true. And because of these people, look at verse two again, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. When false teachers are at work and when crowds are following, the way of truth is blasphemed. God's holy name and honor are disgraced. I remember a friend telling me the story, and, and I don't doubt him, he was watching on television, but he, the way he shared it was so meaningful, but I, I don't want to imply that I saw it myself, but shared from a good friend of mine. He's watching on TV a, a crusade of one of these fam, flamboyant healing evangelists, you know, the kind of guy who just, wow, everybody's healed, whoa, everybody falls down, wow, this is amazing. And he said, you could see off on one side of the platform, there's a whole row of people in wheelchairs. And you know why the wheelchair people are there? Man, they came to get healed. Look, you know, you, you, you or I, we, we might want to get hail, healed of our hangnail or our, you know, uh, bad breath or whatever it is. Th- these people, look, it's, man, it's everything. And these people were utterly ignored by the evangelists. As many of them were struggling to stand up from their, cha- from their wheelchairs. And the whole scene was just so lost, so sad, so, so filled with, with um, a, a, a darkness that had nothing to do with the nature of Jesus Christ. You could see what Peter says, look at it right here in verse two, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now verse three, but by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. These false teachers use covetousness. Both their own covetousness they use, but they also use covetousness in the life of the people they attract. Mr. Prosperity teacher out there, what is he doing? Well, he's covetous. He he wants the private jet or the fancy cars or the mansions or whatever it is. And by the way, some of these prosperity guys are fabulously wealthy, almost incomprehensibly so. In any regard, they are covetous 
but there's also covetousness that they cultivate in the people they preach to. They want people to have the same covetousness. And so they say, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Peter assures us that false teachers will be judged. Even though they seem to prosper for the present time, their judgment is not idle, it's not on pause, God's wrath pours out upon them. And let me give you one way that God's wrath pours out upon them. Just sometimes you get frustrated with false teachers in the church. You look at, God, why do you just strike this guy down? God, you could do it so easily. Why don't you just do it? I'll tell you. Because God's judgment is working upon those men and women even at the present moment. What do I mean by that? Every day that God allows them to go on in their corruption, they are heaping more and more judgment upon themselves. Listen, if, if God was being loving and merciful to them instead of judging, he'd stop them right then. But by even allowing them to go on and heap a greater and greater judgment upon themselves, God is expressing his judgment against them. Now, starting at verse four begins a section that expresses God's care for both the unrighteous and the righteous. And what do I mean by care? God knows what to do with the unrighteous and the righteous. Look here at verse four. He says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in on the flood the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Right here in verses four, five, and six, Peter gives us three examples of God's judgment upon the ungodly. What's the first example? Look at verse four. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, God judged wicked angels, setting them in chains of darkness. Which by the way, that's a powerful literary phrase. What are chains of darkness? I don't know, but it sounds terrible. He put them in chains of darkness, Doing what? Notice here. They are waiting, reserved for judgment. Now apparently, some fallen angels are bound, chains of darkness, and others are active upon the earth and perhaps in the heavens as demons. Now, it is clear that at some time in history or eternity past, angelic beings had a period of choosing and testing regarding their future destiny. Just like you and I right now, is this lifetime not our time for choosing? God gives us as human beings the dignified choice right now, heaven or hell. This is your choice. Follow Jesus or reject him. Love God or push him away. Now is our time of choice, and we understand, don't we, as humans, from what the Bible tells us, that once we pass from this life to the next, the time of choosing is over. Whatever you chose in this season is set in stone for all of eternity once you pass from this life to the next. Now, apparently, the angels have already had their time of choosing. 
and now their fate is set in stone. But of those fallen angels, some of them are bound, some of them are free. Now, we can't conclusively say why and when the angels fell. I'm prepared to go off on a long digression of this that I personally would find very satisfying and, and, and interesting. But let me just say, we don't know for certain why and when the angels rebelled or we don't not, or is that the best word? And we also do not know if Peter's reference here is to the original fall of the angelic host or if his reference is to some particular sinning angels in the days of Noah, which he's gonna mention just in the following verses. That brings up a whole nother issue that I'm not gonna get into here this evening. What's the point? The, the reason why I'm not getting into it is, I just want you to notice, these sinning angels, even though it's fascinating, aren't we fascinated talking about these things? I mean, we could forget about you know, 20 minutes, we could spend a couple weeks talking about this and it would be interesting. But these sinning angels are one of three examples. Do you get that in what Peter just said? What are the three examples? The sinning angels, uh, uh, the world in Noah's day, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So we, we don't wanna get too hung up on the first example because it's the totality of the three that are teaching us the message. R right now, this is just what you have to grab a hold of. Sinning, there were angels who sinned and God judged them, got it? Now verse four, uh, he cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness. They're put into that place there, verse four. Now in verse five, God did not spare the ancient world. Now this speaks of the world before Noah's flood. Notice this, it says in Genesis 6, 5, that because the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a world ripe for judgment. By the way, it hits a little bit too close to home with our present age, but that describes the world before the flood, the world before judgment. The whole earth was this wicked, therefore God sent such a dramatic judgment as is described in the scriptures having to do with the flood. So angels sinned and were judged. The world before the flood sinned and was judged by the flood. Now verse six, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction. God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah making them an example of his judgment. Notice Genesis 18 verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave indeed. Now, notice the last phrase here of verse six, making them an example to those who afterward would be or would live ungodly. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts forth these three examples to warn the ungodly and may I say it to warn us as well. I mean, if you are ungodly, let it be a warning to you, and you're welcome here this evening. But, but for the, the, the godly are welcome here too, and we can all learn from this. Now, notice this. The angels had a place of high status and privilege, did they not? These are angels. These are in the presence of God. In the days of the flood, 
everybody was bad, everybody. It wasn't just a few bad and a few good, everybody was bad. God preserved how many in the days of Lot? Only eight from the population of the entire earth. So virtually the entire earth was corrupt. They were all bad. The angels fell from a very high place. Before the flood, everybody was bad and Sodom and Gomorrah were very prosperous, fertile places. The the way it's described in the book of Genesis, the regions of Sodom and Gomorrah before God judged them was that the ground was lush. It was like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was prosperous for an agricultural society. Okay, so get this. What's the lesson we learn from them? Friends, this is pretty dramatic. God judged the angels who sinned so no one is too high to be judged. Isn't that evident? You think you're so high and mighty? Oh, but let me tell you about my spiritual experiences. No, nobody's too high to be judged. Secondly, God judged the ancient world before the flood so God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't compare man among other men. Because well, we're all bad, God. You can't judge me. God says, no, you're right. You are all bad. I'm judging you all. You, you can't excuse yourself because you're the least wicked among a bunch of wicked people. That doesn't fly with God. No, no, no. God doesn't grade on a curve, so to speak. And then thirdly, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah so even the prosperous can be judged. Were they not prosperous in Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course they were. And don't many people think that way? They, I'm making my way in this world. I'm doing pretty well. Business is good. And congratulations if business is good. It's tough having business good in the world today. So if business is good for you, well, I'm very happy for you. But don't think that that makes you so high and, and so secure that you can't, um, you, that you're beyond the reach of God's judgment. That's what these three examples of judgment show us. Therefore, The ungodly have no reason to think that they can escape God's judgment. Their coming judgment is certain. Now, we have the certainty of God dealing with the ungodly. Now look at, starting at verse seven, we also have the certainty of the righteous and their deliverance. Verse seven, and delivered Lot. Excuse me, delivered righteous Lot. I had trouble saying righteous Lot, but it's right there in the text. And delivered righteous Lot, who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. If God knows how to deal with the wicked, he knows how to set them up for judgment. Okay, we're we're okay with that. He also knows how to deliver the righteous. And who's his example of knowing how to deliver the righteous? Lot. Now, I I don't know what you know about Lot from the Old Testament. I don't have time to do an in-depth study on this. But let me just say, from reading the story of Lot in the Old Testament, you would not immediately jump to the conclusion that he was a righteous man. As a matter of fact, Lot is often used by preacher guys like myself as the um, ultimate of the compromising carnal man who by stages gets more and more worldly and is in the end saved, but by the skin of his teeth, and, and yet, you know, he lost everything because of his compromising carnal ways. That's how we preacher men regard Lot. And I think rightfully so from the Genesis story. If I was teaching the story a lot from Genesis, you better believe that's how I teach it. 
But I find wonderful comfort in the fact that Peter looks at Lot and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, righteous Lot. Matter of fact, he calls him righteous twice in those verses, does he not? Just in case you missed it the first time, he calls him righteous a second time. I find great comfort in this because it shows that when you belong to God, he finds a way to look favorably upon you. Look, even with all Lot's compromises, Lot was a compromiser, Lot was carnal, but by the way, he suffered for it, he lost everything, lost everything. And and his end was shameful, not glorious. Yet he himself was saved because he was a righteous man because of his relationship with God and his response to God's revelation. And I don't know if this is gonna come out just right when I say this. Sometimes I think words in my head and I think maybe I shouldn't say it. But God has a way of covering for his friends. He does. Aren't you glad about that? And by the way, If God did not define Lot by his worst moments, which preacher guys like I want to do, aren't you glad that he doesn't define you by your worst moments? But he can look at you and he can look at me and say righteous. And we are almost as unbelieving as we are when we look at Lot. Lot, really? Righteous? Listen, sometimes I have the same feeling when God says of me, righteous. Lord, me, really? Righteous? So this is strange that Peter uses him as an example, but it is glorious that he uses him as an example. One other thing to notice here, verse 8, the wickedness of Sodom tormented his righteous soul from day to day. He was a tormented man. And is this not characteristic of the compromising Christian or what we might sometimes call the carnal Christian. Are they genuinely saved? Yes. But are they tormented? Yes. To use sometimes the cliche, it is a cliche, but it's a pretty good cliche. They've got too much of the world to be happy in Jesus, but they've got too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. This was Lot's situation, and it tormented him. Now, you, you and I say, for good reason, Lot, If you're so tormented in Sodom, move out of there. But that's a whole nother issue. His soul was tormented. But look at the real point here, verse nine. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Even as the Lord delivered Lot, he knows how to deliver us from the temptations we face. And he knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. The unjust have a reservation made. Reservation, there it is. That table's reserved for the ungodly. God knows how to take care of the ungodly. He knows how to take care of his people. Now, starting at verse 10, Peter's gonna begin to describe the ungodly false teachers, false prophets, those who follow them, starting out verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Um, These are people, number one, notice verse 10, it says that they walk according to the flesh. They, They live according to the flesh, not the spirit. They're marked by uncleanness. 
There's something dirty, filthy about their mind, about their speech, about their life. They are, look at verse 10 again, they're presumptuous, they're self-willed. It's all about them and their self-willed, presumptuous nature leads them to despise authority. Peter may very well have in mind here spiritual authorities. And they despise them, sort of in a way that perhaps in confronting demonic spirits, which by the way, we made reference before to fallen angels and that some of them are bound and some of them are not. There are demonic spirits in this world trying to cause trouble for unbelievers and trying to cause trouble for believers. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when we say devil there, we mean the devil and his agents. It's just speaking sort of with shorthand. And I, I fear that the, the perspective among God's people today, at least in the circles that I see it, the idea of the battle against the devil and his agents is largely forgotten. And, and, and we need to have a renewed understanding and vision of this. But whatever we do in such things, we need to do it under God's authority and not presumptuously with our own authority. Look at verse 11. The angels who are greater in power of mind, they do not bring a reviling accusation. Angels do not come against, and I mean faithful angels, do not come against fallen angels in their own authority. They come against them in the authority of the Lord, and any spiritual battle we do should be with the same mentality. But again, God knows how to take care of these wicked. Look at verse 12, and I'm going to read to the middle of verse 13. It says here, but these, like natural brute beasts, are made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Wow, what a strong description there in verse 12. Like natural brute beasts, since they function in the flesh, not the spirit, they are like animals. Have you considered how many among the human family, how many people that we interact with every day, they live their life on the level of brute beasts? They, they live, and, and hear me out on this, don't, don't dismiss what I'm gonna say just from these first sharp words. Let me explain. They live like animals. No, what do I mean by that? Well, what, what are animals interested in? Think of your dog. What is your dog interested in? Eating, sleeping, the, the lady dog down the street, you know, reproducing. That's what your dog's interested in. And a life of comfort and ease. Your dog loves to lay down and sleep in the sun, doesn't it? it isn't it true? that that marks the majority interests of people in the world today. What they eat, you know, the, 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 the pleasurable interaction they can give with other people, the, the, the uh, reproduction and all that it entails. And, and of course, just a life of comfort and ease. 
Now, I'm not saying that those things are wrong for human beings to enjoy, but we were made to live life on a higher level than that. We, as human beings, we don't ignore or despise the physical. I, I hope you enjoy a good meal. Good for you. You're into that whole foodie thing, you know, you're making up, spending way too much for your food and all that, but fine. You enjoy it, it's worth it to you, I'm not gonna judge it, okay? That's great, but, but, if it ends there, this is gonna sound sharp, but let me say, you're just a dog eating better food. God has given you a spiritual capacity, a, a, a spiritual ability that you need to pursue and cultivate and not live at the level of brute beasts. What of these people? Look at the first part of verse 13. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness. You know, the ungodly will be paid for their evil and their fleshly lives will be paid the wages of unrighteousness. Now, start in the middle of verse 13. Let's read this list of the sins of the false teachers. It's sort of a long section. It goes to the end of verse 17. Beginning now verse uh, 13 in the middle of it. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What does Peter say about them? Well, first, in the middle, the second half of verse 13, they're carousing in their own deceptions. Carousing, which is a great word that we don't use today, but partying. Man, they're partying, but what are they partying in? Their own deceptions. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody of this, uh, of this lifestyle here in this room. Maybe it'll reach somebody later by you know, a recording or a video or something like that. But how, how's that partying life working out for you? Well, I, I'm not saying there's no attraction to it. If there was no attraction to it, you wouldn't do it. But, but really, isn't it true that you're partying in your own deception? That even you sense the emptiness and the deception behind it all? Don't you realize that you're listening to this right now? You're listening to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, because God so longs to deliver you from that deception of the party lifestyle that you're in. But he continues, look at verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, their heart is set on the flesh and their eyes on adultery, both spiritual adultery, which is idolatry, but of course sexual adultery as well. They, and they prey on those who are unstable to join them in their ways. It's very interesting the phrase that Peter used there. According to the commentator Green, Peter literally wrote, that their eyes are full of an adulterous woman. 
The idea is that they lust after every woman that they see. They see every woman as a potential adulteress. And again, this is an exposure of their corruption. Verse 14, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. Oh, they've been trained. Oh, they're equipped, but not for ministry, but for ungodliness. They're, they're, verse 15, they're following the way of Balaam. And again, to just sort of put a very quick summary on Balaam's sin, Balaam was guilty of perhaps the greatest of sins. He led other people into sin, and he did that for the sake of his own gain. Balaam had to be restrained by a dumb donkey because he wouldn't listen to God. And what are these people in the end of it all? Look at it there in verse 17. They are wells without water. You know what wells without water are? Number one, they're useless. And number two, they're dangerous. It seems like it's been a long time, but surely some child has fallen down a well lately and needs to be rescued. They're useless and dangerous. Wells without water. Then why does anybody follow these people then? Why do they get any kind of attraction? Look here at verse 18. Peter will explain. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. I love that phrase in verse 18. They speak great, swelling words of emptiness. It's empty of any real spiritual content, but they pile big words together. And to the undiscerning ear, they go, wow, that guy's really bringing it. But that's the undiscerning ear. Somebody has a little more of a discernment. They're saying nothing. This is empty. There's no content here. Give my soul something from God's word, something to feed upon. And then verse 19, the phrase, very strong. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves. They promise freedom, but freedom can never be found in the flesh, but only in God's spirit. You see, when we seek freedom the wrong way, we become slaves of corruption, the phrase that Peter used there. That's decay, that's death. Now verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. This end of the chapter is very sobering because Peter again refers to the apparent spiritual life of these false teachers. Should we notice this together? Look at verse 20. He says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would be better for a person to have never known a thing about Jesus than to have a truth, hear it, hold it for a season, and then later reject it. 
Their end is worse than their beginning. Why? Because you're held accountable for the truth that you've heard. If you go to a good Bible-teaching church, if you're regularly under the good teaching of the Word of God, I hope you regard it as a blessing, but there's a danger to it. Do you not have great responsibility before God? You certainly do. Now, I'm not telling you go out and find the worst Bible teaching church you can find. Just, just, just so you can have lesser accountability. That would be the exact wrong approach. But it is sobering to think, isn't it? Lord, um, make, me, make me active as a believer. Make me someone who's a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Lord, whatever defenses I come to church with to resist your word, knock them down. Prepare me to receive your word. These should be your constant prayers and thoughts. And then he says, on the same thought, verse 21, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, Peter describes here what certainly appears to be people who had relationship with Jesus and then rejected him. Again, I'm just saying, by appearance. Look at it in verse 20. They have escaped the pollutions of the world. Look at these verses now. In 20 again, he says, they escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here you have somebody, let's walk ourselves through it. They escaped the pollutions of the world. And how do they do it? Through sheer willpower? No, no. They do it through, verse 20, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And verse 21, at one time they had known the way of righteousness. And Peter says, they are destined for judgment. He paints them as lost. Now, speaking theologically, Christians warmly debate, or maybe I should say they hotly debate, the issue of whether or not it is possible for a true Christian to ever lose their standing as a true Christian and fall away to damnation. Do you kind of get what the, what the debate is all about? Here's someone and they are saved. If they were to, to die today, they would go to heaven. But, but they don't die today. They live another 20 years. And in their 20 years remaining, they, you know, go into all kinds of corruption. Just the kind of thing that Peter talks about here. And now when they die, they're not going to heaven. They're going to go to hell. And whatever they had 20 years before, somewhere along the way, they lost. And, and Christians love to hotly debate this issue. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Shall I answer that question for you here? What side do you want me to argue? I'll argue either side of it for you. Because listen, I believe so strongly in the security of the believer. The believer is secure. 
And the believer isn't secure because we have such a tight grip on Jesus Christ. Why is the believer secure? Because Jesus has such a tight grip on us. I believe in the security of the believer. But ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to preach that to you here this evening and give anybody, well, so we don't have to, what Peter said here, just kind of forget it. No, no. Let, let me tell you how I resolve this for myself. I resolve it for myself here by simply saying, whether or not a person is genuinely saved, God alone knows but I can judge by the appearance. And I'll tell you this, not only from this passage in 2 Peter chapter two, but from many other passages, can we not with confidence say this, that there are people who certainly have every appearance of being saved who will not make it to the end. That is undeniably true. Now, the argument will center on, well, they were never saved. No, they had it, they lost it. No, they were never saved. No, they had it or they lost it. You know what? Well, go in the other room and argue that one. I'll tell you this. It is possible for a person to have the outward appearance of being right with God, just like Peter describes here, and they don't make it to the end. That should be a sober warning for us in our own walk with God. Not to take away our sense of security in Jesus Christ. No, we are so comfortable in that. But just to remind ourselves, it really is a matter of the individual heart before God and not just what is out there by the outward appearance. Peter gives us that warning. But remember, he puts it in the bigger context. God knows how to deal with the wicked. Have we not seen that over and over again in chapter two tonight? Are you worried about the wicked in the world today? Can I just remember? God knows how to deal with the wicked. Well, but, but, but no, the, these people over here and this people over there, man, this and then, then the election and then this and then all the count and whatever. God knows how to deal with the wicked. But no, I saw in the news, this and that, this and that. God knows how to deal with the wicked. But he also knows how to preserve his people. That, that is of equal or greater confidence to me. He knows how to preserve us. If God can say, righteous lot, I have great hope that he can say, righteous David. Because the righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Not in Lot, not in David, but in Jesus himself. Father, this is our prayer. We pray that every day you would keep every one of us passionate after you. And Lord, I pray in particular that you would make us utterly unsatisfied with the appearance or the image of the Christian life. And Lord, that we would demand the real, the substance, uh, the true Christian life within us, Lord. This demands a deep work of your Holy Spirit, so do it in our midst. We love you and we praise you this evening in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.